This episode with Erica Nepper is going to be a great fit for you if you are younger, trying to figure out which is the path that you should take in long-term care, or if you're a little bit older and you've dabbled in many different roles and you want to look back to think about what you would do differently or advice you'd have for your younger self, join me and Erica as we discover her her path through long-term care, her mistakes, tangibles, intangibles, skills that she wished she'd had when she started out 20 years ago. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of LTC Heroes. Today, I'm joined by Erica Nepper. Erica has over 20 years of experience in long-term care and has been in and around all aspects of the industry. From our end, operations manager, back to urgent care, hospice, and on top of that, has done all sorts of service that goes above her normal range of duties. Erica, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Erica, I normally dive right into a a number of specific questions, but I want to give a little bit of frame of reference for why I asked you to join the podcast. And it's because when I looked at your resume, I realized that you have what seems might be a textbook climb in long-term care from one role to another. And I've noticed you've also gotten back into the clinical side of things. Plus, you're a young female leader, so you climbed really quickly. I want us to be able to explore some of those different roles, what you learned from each one, what you wished you had known. And so this might be a little bit of preparation for the younger audience who might be thinking of the same thing, and they might be able to hear you and what you would do differently. You okay with that? Great. So with that mentioned, what valuable advice do you believe that you and I might untangle or unveil today in our chat? I think the biggest thing is to teach nurses how important it is to be allies, and that's allies in many sense of the word, as well as what they need to do to be successful nurses and leaders in today's nursing world. And I would also have to say ways to battle burnout. That'll be helpful because I'm certain that is a big topic in the last year. What's one lesser known book, newsletter, or industry resource that you recommend I go to that I might not have heard of before talking to you? Yeah, so I would have to say the Geriatric Medicine Magazine is a great magazine to be able to learn a lot of what's going on right here and right now. Another one basically specifically to long-term care would be that of McKnight's. It has all the happenings that are going on in the long-term care industry right now. It also really empowers leaders and always has an area where it's talking about the key leader for, you know, the time. Great. And if you if you had one mentor that has influenced the way that you approach long-term care, who would that be? So that's hard to pick just one, but I'm going to pick one that probably is the unsung hero in a way. If you were to Google her name, you would see her. You would see she's a part, a part of a huge company with long-term care, but that's in no way why she's my mentor. So that would be Patty Garibaldi. She functions day to day with such a sense of ease 
and smoothness and clarity in what she does. She has a vast of knowledge in long-term care, and she has gone about it in a way that most nurse consultants aren't ever able to successfully do, and that is having her compassion drive her decisions. And even if it's probably the worst day for the person that she's working with or the biggest clinical nightmare she's ever walked into, you would never sense that. And she is able to support you in a way that you never had to worry, you never had to feel shame. I got to actually work with her more as a colleague or a mentor, partner with her in helping a building that quite frankly, was butchered by surveyors as far as all of the citations they gave a facility. And not necessarily in a fashion of she came to my building and helped me out of something, but partner, mentor, and then just see her along the way. She's an amazing clinical educator, and she's always willing to share her knowledge to help others grow. Great. Great recommendation. Let's dive right in. and. Eric, I guess where I think I want to start is if you can tell me the by names the different roles that that you have fulfilled starting day one until today. Yeah, so my very first role in Oregon as an RN was what I thought to be just that, an RN. Within about two days, I became the charge nurse, unbeknownst to me one day when I walked into the building. And then I went from the charge nurse to the resident care manager to the director of nursing. I did a little bit of nurse consulting in between that. I then went into a operations manager position, back to nurse consulting, traveling nurse, lots of little community-based care nursing roles. And then my current role is that of the director of business development and RN consultant. Great. Did you start off thinking that was going to be your path? Did you assume that you were going to just be on the clinical side? Did you always have management in your view? I never, when I took on the role of nursing, thought that I would be a manager or even have the desire to be a manager. I've always thought that I'd be willing to help support an advocate, Kate, but when I graduated, my two areas of that I thought I would focus on were polar opposite, and that was either geriatrics or OB. I fell into geriatrics and loved it, never really stepped out of it. Even if when I took more clinic positions, I still was always dabbling in geriatrics, and that was my focus, and have never looked back and thought, oh, I wish I would have chosen a different area of nursing. So when you mentioned at the beginning, kind of your first day as RN, you got thrown into more responsibility than you expected. I see this on Facebook groups of nurses every single day. Looking back on it now, how prepared were you? What it had you, had you known that was what you're going to be thrown into? What would you do a little bit differently? What advice would you give to yourself? Yeah, so it is on every avenue of social media all the time. I think what's a little different with most people's posts than mine is 
you go to work and you find out your caseload is 10 times more than you expected, or you go to work and you found out you've been floated to another floor. And how are you going to do that? Because you haven't done those skills in 10 years. I went to work thinking I was going to learn how to be an RN and walked in and was thrown into this charge nurse position. And I think what I would have learned, like to have known when that happened and what I'd like to share with others is while you might be thrown into those situations, don't forget about the person that you may be stepping on in that situation. With this particular situation, I received a phone call from my boss as I was walking in the building telling me that I was going to be the charge nurse and the previous charge nurse didn't know. So I was never given the skill set to tell someone that they were no longer in charge of something, nor was I given the emotional intelligence that's needed to know that I needed to support that person rather than just giving them the communication that was given from my boss. Uh, and I think that was the biggest learning experience is you can't just take direction from your boss because of fear, but that you have to step back and look at what that other person is feeling and support that. How would you handle it differently today? How, how old were you then? 20, 22? Oh, early 20s. Yes. Okay. How would you do it differently? Would you tell your boss, no, this is your responsibility? Would you tell your boss, no, I need to be trained? Would you have handled your conversation with the charge nurse differently? Yeah, I still reflect back and don't think I would have told my boss, no, it's your job, even though I knew it was, or that I couldn't handle it. I think what I would have done is handled it different with the charge nurse and started out with where she was at emotionally first and talk to her a little bit about what was happening rather than just project projecting the directive and then moving on my way. So I really would have listened to her first. I think that's the biggest takeaway of everything I've learned in my 20 plus years is sit down and listen before you speak, but really listen and hear where the person is and don't just take that they're fine for the answer because they're really probably not fine. And if you figure out why they're not fine, you both can be in a better place. I ended up really supporting this nurse after I had to take over her position. And the skills and the lack of accountability that my prior boss were not able to get out of this nurse I actually was. So in turn, it actually helped this nurse to be better and get along better with our boss and us to be able to work collaboratively because after I kind of dropped the bomb, I reflectively went, oh gosh, and she still has to come to work every day. How is she going to do that? And figured out a way to partner with her to be successful where she was now. That jump, I guess your your title in theory, changed, maybe not from one day to the next, but your responsibility changed from one to the next. Was that the biggest jump for you as an individual in experience, emotional intelligence, responsibility, or there are other jumps in your past that were of equal great greatness? Reflecting back, I think it was probably the biggest jump where I had to learn on my feet right away. But I would say I had one more jump that was pretty dramatic in my career that and it's really the most pivotal direction in my career. And that was 
that of going to be the operations manager in a community where I knew that it was going to be the biggest challenge before I walked in because they were not wanting to have Caucasian leaders in their community. And I was that lucky one. And tell me a little bit about that. What, what, was, what was the day before your arrival like? What was your first day as this new leader that no one wanted in the building? Yeah, so my day before my arrival was a lot of questions. So I had been a nurse manager. I wanted to move up to the next step. I had actually applied for another job, same job, but very small setting, well-established, had already been running smooth, and I was just going to jump in and learn as I went. There was a lot of political bureaucracy on the inside of our company, So that didn't happen because someone felt overstepped. So they said, oh, we're going to give you an even better opportunity and you're going to go over here. So my driving into the neighborhood, even though I knew it was going to be a challenge, I was so excited because it was a neighborhood that I grew up in. It was a neighborhood where I felt at home. It was a neighborhood that I felt was genuinely part of my family. But if you look at me, you would not know that half of my family is African-American. So I didn't get to share that at first because all they saw was this young, blonde, white woman walking into their building. And so my first day was fine. You know, the first couple of months were fine. I felt the challenge and the pushback. I then decided I was going to go at things in a different fashion. And rather than fight the fight the current, I was going to get right in the trenches. And so I looked at how I could do that best and how I could serve the residents that were there. And so my main focus was the residents. I didn't care about the staff that were falling around me, the poor morale of the staff, or the attendance problems of the staff that directly impact the residents because I needed to gain the trust of somebody and the staff had no desire to do that. Because not only was I this woman coming into the building, a Catholic community, a Catholic organization was coming in to take over a privately owned Baptist-ran community. So there were so many things against me. I immediately chose some of the most difficult residents at the campus, uh, some that were still affiliated with gangs, some that were alcoholics, some that had severe mental health, the ones that the staff absolutely could not appreciate working with and befriended them and gained their trust so that I could then help support them where they were and start educating the staff on how to care for these people, being proactive with their needs rather than ignoring their needs so that they were more angry and acting out more. That gained me a lot of trust with the residents, which then started to gain me trust with the outer community. I then had to figure out again how to be the only young Caucasian woman going out into the community and joining things like the African-American Coalition and all of those groups so that they could see that I actually was walking the walk, not just talking the talk. So we really gained a lot of things. We really opened our facility up to allow the community 
at large to come in to provide them supports, to see how we were providing their community that could no longer support themselves be together. But the biggest challenge was that while we were gaining all of this ground, there was still the internal political things happening. And I had to choose at that point to say, am I going to continue to be in this community where I felt empowered I was respected by the outer community and the inner community, or am I going to allow political bureaucracy to take out a staff member that was being targeted and not being protected? And I had the key to be able to cause that termination, and I would not give, I would not hand over that key. So I cho chose to walk away from that community to protect my staff. And so that was a big thing for me to have to learn that I needed to stand behind my morals and my values and the morals and values that they were saying our community was run by. And I would not change that decision to this day. And the staff that I helped to support and further their careers are still some of the closest colleagues I have to this day. Are there any mistakes that you made looking back on thinking, man, if I, if I knew then what I know now, I would have handled this a little bit differently. Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes that I made is not speaking up. I spoke up and advocated for my staff, but through the whole thing, I was still protecting my organization because I have a really strong belief in being in alignment with who I work for. But I think that if I could have taken that one step farther for advocacy and shared some of the things that maybe weren't morally being done correctly to the larger community, I could have even served more people and protected more people. So I think not being afraid to speak up, not being afraid to go just one step farther to take, take it on myself. Have you had any other roles where you had to win over the staff, especially when you moved into a management position and the residents and that, you know, is a different dynamic, but, you know, just as difficult or in a similar fashion? I have not necessarily needed to win over the residents or patients in any other roles unless it was isolated situations. But winning over the staff is almost something that occurs every single time you take a new management position. And I think what I really learned and what I try to empower the rest of my colleagues, whether that be frontline nurses, whether that be someone that I'm mentoring, is that you just have to get to the level of the people that you're needing to serve or manage. And that's listening to them, that's being out there and doing what you're asking them to do and having follow through. If you don't have those things, you can't get people to fall behind you and continue to lead when you're no longer there and they need to lead. I don't want to say that long-term care seems more clicky in that sense, but what you just manifested is something that I hear over and over. And with the high turnover in our industry, you know, every year, every two years, someone's moving. Why do you think that we're still clicky? Because I think it's something that has been ingrained in the long-term care community. 
I think it's something that for some reason people feel like if you're not in this perfect box, then things are going to fall down around you. And there might need to be a sense of control that isn't necessary. I think that the more that you let people that aren't in leadership positions lead, the more successful the leaders are. The more you let the people that are actually touching the lives of the residents or patients run the show, the more successful you're going to be. There is often a sense of the CNA or the nurse not feeling like they have the control to be able to do something that then is what causes the concerns from the family or the concerns from the patient. One thing that I most recently noticed, and this is going to sound absolutely silly, but it provides a sense of that example of control and what it does to dehumanize the staff member that has to engage with the patient. But we've been working on a project here on mental health and well-being and compassion fatigue related to COVID. So I asked all of my staff to tell them, tell me some of the things that can help you with your mental health and well-being. And some of the things that came out of that, I first looked at it and said, they even understand my question because they're giving me things that are day-to-day things that really shouldn't impact their well-being. But then I had to sit back and look at it from their perspective. And one of them was, can you please just take the wipes out of the bedroom so that we don't have to keep asking the nurses for the wipes? First of all, we can't find them. Second of all, they're angry that we're having to chase them down just to get a box of wipes. So when I brought it up to the leadership at first, they were like, oh, but they're in there so that we know how many we have. Or, oh, they're in there because it's cost control. And I said, while it might be cost control, in the end, it's not saving us money because since the caregiver couldn't get the wipes, they weren't able to provide what they felt sufficient care to a patient, which could then in turn turn into a wound. And then we have to pay for the treatment for that wound. But the most important key factor is, can you imagine waking up and going to work and going, I know that I'm going to have to ask the nurse for wipes tonight. And what can I do to prevent that? It's turning it around and giving them the sense of power and control. And the the fact that we even had them locked up blew me away because those were the things you did in the 80s and the 90s. But that was something that somebody did and they did it out of good intention. But then we didn't go back and verify if that was a success or if that was something that actually inhibited people more. And the amount of happiness that it brought to the staff just to do something simple like that overall improves their mental health and well-being. When this specific situation came up with the staff morale, you were in a management position, right? In the kind of on the operations side. Would you go ahead? I actually, it's kind of interesting in being the director of business development. I kind of dabble in anything you could think of. And always staff appreciation is one of my biggest areas of focus. Because if you don't have good and happy staff, you're not going to have happy residents, and then they're not going to share that the community. So I overstretched my role of director of business and development to flow into that staff appreciation. 
the reason I asked is because I'm guessing before you got into the operational side of things, your approach to asking for for the wipes might have been a little bit different, right? How has how have you grown? And I guess let's start off with how far you had to come, right? Because you weren't perfect the first time you were in clinical and then had to bridge that gap. So what didn't you know before you get into operations and what knowledge have you acquired to bridge those two different departments? Yeah, so I would have to say when I first was a nurse, I wouldn't challenge that I had to go ask for something. I would have just done it because that's what I was told and that's what I needed to do. But when I got into the role of the resident care manager, I had to look at things a lot more globally and I had to look at I'm managing the staff and I'm managing the residents. So when I was managing those people, then I had to say, I can't just do it because I'm told. I have to ask. And when I was in that role, I would say, maybe I asked a little too harshly. And that kind of came from who I was trained by. And it was kind of training by a fear basis and you just will do so in being a young leader, I was like, well, if that's how it works, then I guess I have to act like that too. And so my ask would often be denied. And that's really what decided to make me bridge into continuing to be in management because I would bring up concerns and oftentimes it would be like, oh, Erica, that's not really happening. But the hard part for me was I would never come with a concern without the facts. So if I'm showing you the facts and you're still just telling me that's really not happening, how am I going to get the outcome to be different so that it's going to be a positive outcome? So that's what really drove my desire to say, I think I'm going to have to be a manager because then I'm going to have the power to make those decisions and to implement things when people bring them to me because the role I was in all I could do was get the concern but then there was a roadblock because I couldn't show the staff that I brought the concern and now we've had a change how old were you more or less when you got into your first management position I think I was still late 20s so at the time that I became the director of nursing I think I was one of the youngest director of nursing in Portland that's what I was guessing. What what challenges did you face as such a young leader overseeing probably clinical side that was, you know, 20 years your your elder? And what did you handle poorly? And then also what would you look back and pat yourself on the back and like, thank you, mom, thank you, dad, thank you, grandma, for teaching me to also lead as a as a young female? Yeah. I think the challenges that I faced is they always looked at me with the stigma of what is this young little girl going to do for us that no one else has been able to do. And so I had to learn really quickly that I had to prove myself. I had to show them that I was not better than them. I think that they were shocked that if someone said no one is here and it's three o'clock in the morning and we don't know what we're going to do, that I would get up put my clothes on and come to work. That was not the way that they had seen other leaders lead. And I think that really caused me to gain the trust quicker than I would have expected. 
Um, what did I learn that I would do differently? I still had another leader above me that led based off of fear. So I think what I would have done differently and comes back to what I pride myself in doing today is advocate more for the staff. I did little things by advocating for the staff. I had to always say, yes, we're going to appreciate the staff. Yes, it's nurses week and I'm going to do this. And my boss would choose to select people for maybe termination or demotions based off of personal feelings rather than clinical feelings or clinical product. So I did find a way to stand up to that person very quickly and say, if I'm going to be in this position, I will not move forward with any terminations until you give me clinical data. So I felt like that was a success, but I probably didn't always stand up when I needed to, to maybe support all the staff in a fashion that I do now. One, because I probably hadn't learned my listening skills as well. And two, because I was a young leader and a young mother and had to say, I also need this as my career. So it was maybe putting myself forward a little bit more. And as I learned in my leadership and getting further education around leadership, I was able to do what I feel I was destined to do, and that's advocate and give to others before myself. Going back to the the idea of how you learned how to gain other others' trust at that young age of you know putting on your your clothes at three thirty in the morning and going out and and delivering care, where do you think you gained that approach? Were you born that way? Is there someone in your family or in long-term care that said, this is how you lead? I think some of it was, I really have a belief that we're all put here for a purpose. And that's what kind of molds and creates what what we're going to be. And I would have to say it was kind of embedded in me. I would have to say that my mother and my grandmother taught me accountability, responsibility, and respect. But their roles were not one that I would be able to learn that if I didn't do what I was asking of others, I wouldn't be successful. That was just something that I somehow saw and maybe thought, how are they going to learn to respect me if I'm not willing to do what I'm asking of them? Have you had any leaders or managers younger than you in your career? That were my boss? Mm -hmm. Boy, I can't think of any. If so, maybe one, but I can't think of any. Usually my bosses have been older than me or currently about the same age as me. When I look back at all the different transitions that I've had in my professional career, there's a couple certain moments in life that I feel like were transformative in who I am. Is there a specific week or month in one of your roles that really you look back and say, man, that is who I am. That made me passionate about this. This taught me how to handle a certain situation or crisis or even something positive. Yeah, I think that the area that was probably, in my opinion, but retrospectively, 
looking back on it from the outsider's perspective opinion, biggest failure, which I've had many different people in the community that didn't even know that there was anything going on or that, that, that I thought there was a failure, would also probably be the area that was my most pivotal moment, both in me continuing to say, this is what I was meant to do, as well as I'm here to be the ally and the advocate. So I kind of switched from the role of saying, I'm the caregiver and I'm here to serve, to I am the ally and I am here to, I've always looked at serving the underprivileged, but I'm here really to hear them and speak their words. And that was again at the community where I ended up really transforming that African-American community. In order to be seen as successful there, I had to really look at how I could engage socially, both internally and externally, and provide a sense of inclusion. So that was where I really started to advocate for the LGBT community, the mental health community, really serving the African-American population at areas that they were the their weakest. So I created a lot of community involvement areas there and made sure and empowered my staff and residents to do things they probably would have never done before and love it and be happy about it. So I had staff and residents that were always saying, oh, one day I want to do a 10K or one day I want to do a 5K. And I said, why are we waiting until one day? Let's do this. Let's join this charity walk. Let's earn money and provide that. Let's do a breakfast for everybody in our community that's involved in this Good in the Hood program. So I think that was the biggest pivotal moment to me taking a failure and making it a success. I'm interested in understanding how you acquire leadership knowledge and specifically that that you didn't have innately you know, from, from birth or from your, your family around you. So as, as you grew and blossomed and took on new responsibilities in an industry where I'm sure you're overworked like every other nurse that I see on Facebook, you're putting in 50 to 60 hours. You didn't have time to read books. You probably fell asleep. You already said you're a mother. How do you personally, Erica, go about learning? Are you observational? Do you need your hands on? And, and how do you have the time to, to acquire those skills? I'm very observational. I tend to look at things that aren't working and then dig deeper and figure out how to make them work. And then also definitely hands-on. I think I had the pleasure of when I was working for Providence, there was every bit of access you could have to leadership trainings and classes. You just had to be willing to resource that. So as you said, while I was working 80 hours a week at that particular community, I still took the time to embrace those trainings and those educations. And then when I went to work for another community, I was able to participate in Leading Age and their lead Leadership Academy. And that was a really great pivotal moment for me because not only did I have to read some books to learn the knowledge, I then had to take it and carry it back to my community, try it out, revamp it, and then bring it back to the group 
and have them critique me as well as me critique myself. So that was a really great learning experience. So I think while nurses say they're busy or they don't have time, if you take the time, you'll have less confrontation, less negative outcomes, which then leads you to be have more time to do what you really wanted to do, which was engage with patients or support staff. When you first got into operations, what was the learning curve for you? And were you aware of it beforehand? And if, if not, what, was, what, what were the gaps in your knowledge and, and experience that you had to catch up the fastest on? I knew that there would be gaps, but I also knew that I felt that many people probably wouldn't know that I had those gaps because of my my first career when I grew from that nurse to that director of nursing really quickly because of the leader that I had, I was able to run many different departments. So many operations people that were nurses kind of when you become an operations you're like, okay, I have this siloed bit of knowledge and I know how to manage nursing. I had already had the pleasure of being able to manage other departments like social work and maintenance and the the kitchen. So that was in the bag for me. I was able to do that. But what I will have to say is when I walked into that role, I have had never even I'd seen a budget, I'd been told, here's your nursing budget and you manage it, but I had no clue in the world how to manage a financial budget for an entire community. So that was my biggest gap. It was my area that I knew I had to work on. And I will have to say that it was an area that I knew that I could glean information from my mother who has a financial background. So the whole time I was running the community, which was in the red and had been in the red for five plus years. And when I walked out of that building, we were in the black and we were running budgets where you could actually serve the, the clientele and still have extra money to do things for staff appreciation. And not very many people had any clue that I had never put my hands on a budget before. I'm interested to know how you leave a position in good standing with policies, procedures, and are able to, to move on to something else. And I think it would be helpful to, to dive into something very specific, whether it be a weight loss program or a wound program or even staff morale because if you're if you're in a position today, Erica, and you know the, the owner and management team says, Erica, we need you at this facility ASAP, how do you go about leaving your footprint so they can take over? I would first have to say something you should always do if you want to have respect as a nurse or in the community. Because as you know, the long-term care community is very small. And you're going to run into somebody that you either liked or didn't like, no matter where you hit your next career. So I have never left a community that I didn't give a 30 to 90 day or greater, I'm going to move on. And then always gave them the caveat that they could call on me for anything after I left that community. And to this day, I still have a, a group of colleagues that 
the first time they don't have an answer to something, they may not have talked to me in three years, but they're going to call me and I'm going to give them the answer. Not a lot of people choose to do that because they're like, oh, I don't want to give away my hidden secret. But we all need those little tidbits of information. So I do really think it's important not to burn bridges because you may be walking over that bridge again another day. And then as far as keeping systems in place, I think what's really important is that you have to really look at the infrastructure. So I would say I would talk about a wound care program as an example. You have to make sure that first there is that infrastructure. And when you have that, you're going to look at a quality improvement program and what what part of the infrastructure, what part of the, the program is broken. And then you're going to kind of start from the bottom up. Just as you said, you're going to make sure there's a policy and a protocol that's in place. You're going to provide that education. You're going to make sure that you have tools in place that can verify that the system continues to work and that you can't be afraid that if the system isn't working to tear it all apart and start all over again. And I think what's going to sustain that program and leave your footprint is first to make sure that you've actually shared what you've done. You've documented what you've done so that it will be there when you walk away, but that you are empowering the people that are actually going to do the job to be part of the performance improvement plan and to actually make the decision so that they have the buy-in and they really feel empowered because then it's going to continue to sustain once you've left. I'm certain that that's a lot harder to do than it is uh, to say. Is there a specific area that you could give me an example of that was a challenge for you to do it, to leave it? Maybe it was a weakness of yours and you learned how to create a system and pass it off. So at least it was in better shape than when you took it over, even if it were a challenge. I think an area that some people struggle with that I maybe didn't realize it was as pivotal and important in the beginning was that of letting the staff that are actually doing the work lead. I think it might have been a challenge for me in the past, but right now I see it the key to biggest success. But it still continues to be the biggest hurdle in almost any group I have worked in two communities that have been the most successful because they let the resident or the resident's family member or the nurse or the CNA run the quality improvement program, and that made it the most successful. But for some reason, we as nurses and we as leaders in long-term care, we feel like we can't let go or something might not work quite right. And So we don't let those people lead. And so I think that's the most important thing that I still try to drive home. And I think that if we empower those that are doing the work, that's going to be the biggest success. I'm going to get this quote wrong in paraphrasing it, but there was a NFL player, a football player 10 or 15 years ago that says, you pay me for Monday through Friday, but I do Sundays for free. What part of your job, what hour of your job would you happily do for free? And it's the whole reason you work the rest of the day. 
Yeah, I think that I have two Sunday football games. I think that I can take what could be a very large staff issue where they tend to usually be very confrontational, argumentative, and probably at the beginning of the conversation, I think they're never going to admit to what they've done and sit with them and listen to them. And usually every staff interaction, when you know it's going to be around counseling or maybe even disciplinary action, the very second sentence they say is, you in leadership don't ever listen to us and you have no idea what we're doing out there. And then they realize that was probably not the right thing to say to me because I can give them an example of the time they brought something to me and how quickly we took that and implemented it. So then they kind of have to say, oh, shoot. And you can see the light bulb go on and they say, oh, so you're telling me that if I would have told you the amount of time it's taking to put PPE on due to COVID, you would have said, what suggestion do you think is going to help you with that? And it would have been resolved. And so in my career, that's been probably my biggest take home of, oh, I feel like I've won the prize because they've seen that I've actually helped them before. And so if they just open up, we're going to listen again. And then the other thing that's really me winning that Sunday night football game is when I get to go and engage with a resident that is really struggling or a resident that's transitioning to pass away and I get to help them with that. That's what fills my emotional bank so that I can go on the next day. Mm, Those are good, good examples. I think going full circle back to the reason we got into this chat, which is you know, there's a percentage of younger listeners who are going to think, what, which way do I want to go? Do I want to follow Erica's path? And I think what I would like to ask you is, what tangible skill do you have today that you think would have served you most 20 years ago? And also, what's a softer intangible skill that you would just love to have had 20 years ago as well? First, what I would say is slow down and really think, is this what I want to do? And the why around that. So when I went into leadership, I went into leadership because I wanted to help a greater population with that being staff and residents. But if that's not what you want to do, and you're just feeling like I have to move this next step in leadership because I'm being forced to, or because it's my next level of advancement and it's expected of me, it's not what you need to be successful as a nurse. So it's okay to say no. But if it is what you want to do, then I think my biggest softer skill was to actually stop and listen. And I think that's the biggest thing I learned is if you don't listen, and I'm not saying listen with your ears, I'm saying listen with all of your senses. And be willing to say, okay, they said they're okay, but they're not really okay. And dig down, you're not probably going to be very successful if you don't learn that skill. And then I think, you know, some of the bigger takeaways is that of advocacy, that of not being afraid to push the boundaries, but remembering to do it in a professional manner. Hmm. I know that after speaking to lots of different facilities and administrators, 
I think everyone is plagued with more or less the same problems, cost containment, improving reimbursements, staffing, staffing <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. Occupancy, surveys. Would you say that you have grown most as a leader? And and, and by replying, you're going to say you started off weak and you finally feel up to the level that you that you should be. Yeah. So I think there's two areas that I kind of equally am now at a point where I can say I'm at a success rate with. And that would be that of staffing and cost containment. So when I started out my career, you know, you just looked at staffing as you just needed to plug this amount of people in here and then your life would be wonderful. And that's not really the way it is. You know, when you're doing staffing, you have to look at so many multifaceted things, but you have to keep at the forefront. If it says you only need six people, but you really look at the acuity of the patients and you need eight, there makes no sense to cut corners. Because if you provide those extra people, even though it exceeds the minimum requirements, your staff morale is going to be higher, your patient outcomes are going to be higher, your amount of workers' comp claims is going to decrease. So while you could have a leader above you saying, you can't have eight people. We only have enough money for six people. If you can prove to them with cost containment and other areas to be able to excel with that, you're meeting the needs in so many other areas. But the other thing of staffing that I've really found to be where I'm really have been hitting a sweet spot is many people's first thought is to just look at using agency and agency staff does not provide a better quality outcome. So I've been successful in a couple of my communities from going into the tens of thousands of dollars a month of agency to becoming agency free. So that's kind of the rest of that staffing caveat. And it also falls into cost containment. But I think, again, with cost containment, what you have to do is teach your leaders to be able to say, here's your big umbrella number of what you can have, rather than being so rigid into, for pencils, I'm going to spend this amount. And for this, I'm going to spend this amount. Because if you can find a way to save in one corner that allows you to spend in all the other corners in a way you would never see, then you're going to be successful in every avenue. And so I've really been able to take budgets and just give a blank slate and allow there to be that freedom and just say, if you hit your bottom line, then you're still going to be successful. So not be so rigid. You've taken on every role. And I, while I don't know your age, Erica, I think you probably have another 20 years before you might retire. At least. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what's next? If your management company comes to you and knocks on your door today and says, Erica, a year from now, we know that you are going to have an entire system set up that you all of your subordinates are going to be able to do your job because that's how you train. What do you what do you want to do next? What are you going to tell them? If my position was eradicated to the point that I no longer needed to fit in the position, I think I would be the first one to say that. Because I can always find different and new endeavors. There's so many more things that I want to educate myself on that both can help me to be successful in my current role, but also in other roles if I were to go and do something independently. 
but I could see myself doing some sort of education. I could see myself doing some legal nurse consulting. I think the greatest thing about being a nurse is while we can get burned out in the moment, we should never feel like we are so burned out that we need to change from being a nurse. Because if you're tired of doing one role, that's the luxury of being a nurse. You may need a little bit of education to go into a different area, but you may be able to go into a different area just based off of your experience or based off being able to sell yourself and move into another career, like walking into an operations manager role, not even having any idea how to manage a budget. Because if you're a nurse, you can do just about everything. So you have the ability to step outside your role and step outside that burnout to move on to something new. Now, I will say there is a caveat to that. And that is when you're in the middle of a pandemic, you can feel wiped out and burned out. But that's only situational. And we're going to get through this. A lot of times we get more pessimistic as we get older. And we believe that care was better 20 years ago than it is today. And while some of those things are true, I also want to be optimistic. Is there any trend today that you see in long-term care that inspires you, that makes you say, you know, if, if your son or daughter wants to become a nurse two years from now, you're like, man, something my generation did well and the next generation is doing better that really makes me happy? So it's funny you should say that. My son has 11 more months and he will be a nurse. And my daughter is an administrator of a community. So they have followed in my footsteps, but they also grew up in my communities. So I would have to say what we do better, and it's come from, it's been forced upon us. <laughs> and, and I've seen more of it in this time of a pandemic than I had before, but I've seen it as we go through the years, is while you could dwell on the fact that regulations are changing when you when you've closed your eyes and gone to bed and you wake up and everything is new and there's a new regulation for this and a new regulation for that that could really stifle you i've seen people in long term care take that on as a challenge and with this pandemic we're being asked and expected to change on a dime we just recently got an indoor visitation policy that came out on the 10th and said, effective immediately, you must. And so your head is spinning and you're like, effective immediately, we must allow all visitors into the building while we still have no idea how we're going to manage the pandemic. I think probably 10 years ago, we all would have just went in the room, shut the door and said, the hell with this. But now we're given the challenge to do this. And I've seen that instead of stifling ourselves, people are acting on things so much faster and not being afraid of change, which often is what can set us up to just not make advancements. That's helpful. With COVID this year, with the amount of bad press that's going through the media about some facilities that have been negligent, some journalists who are taking advantage of singling out bad cases and hurting the industry. It's, 
it's always refreshing to hear about something positive like like you just stated. Is there anything, Erica, in in your past that we haven't talked about today that you think would be helpful to, you know, your 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 son or daughter uh, five years ago when they were thinking about doing this or just finishing up their schooling that you you would like to look back and say, man, I wish I would have known that as I started down this path. I think the most important thing is something we learn or we hope that we've learned as we've grown. And that is that you really have to stick to your internal morals and values and let them guide you. And don't let others take you down a path that that isn't really internally what you believe in. And I also think that if you got into long-term care thinking that this was going to be an easy job or a job that you might make money quickly, while those might be things that you can work out, if you don't have compassion and if you're not in it for the right reason, you probably should walk back out the door and find something different. This I'm gonna. This is gonna be a real big curveball, Erica. So feel free mm-hmm. to tell me. No way, I can't put you on the spot. Do you have an, a a quote or a mantra or just some saying that you have someone in your life who who said to you growing up that you always re, that you think about and, and it kind of identifies you and explains how the way you approach approach your job in the industry. So it's probably the way I approach my life, which then folds into my job in the industry. And I don't think it was something somebody imparted on me in words or that was a particular mantra that would be common to others. But it is still something that I teach to this day that I impart in my children and I impart in anybody that's struggling that wants me to help. And that is that we don't have to be what is expected of us, or we do not have to fall into what we were given as our family or the path we thought we were on. We can look at that path and we can look at that lifestyle and we can choose to be better and we can choose to make a difference. And that's really what gets me going every morning, even when I have the day that I'm like, oh, I I don't know that I can go one more day with wearing eye protection and having a mask. That that's just what kind of gets me where I'm going. And I could have looked back at my life and said, boy, it looks like I should be an alcoholic. Or I could have chosen to say, I have not seen many people encouraging me to go to college. I've not seen very many college graduates in my immediate family and gone down a different path. But I chose to say, hey, this is what I wanted to be. And then after I was midway into my career, I found out things that I would have loved to have known as I chose my path as a career. And that was that my great-grandfather was a doctor that one of my great, great aunts was a nurse and that I was born on Florence Nightingale's birthday. And I always believe that we are put on this earth for a specific reason and there's always signs around you. And when I went to college, I never thought that I would be a nurse. And I had a very influential woman in my life who said, I think you'd be great at this. And I took on that challenge and I've never regretted it. It's been the best life 
plan I could have thought of. Erica, you've been amazingly open and vulnerable as we explored your path today. I know that there are going to be some some youngins who listen to this podcast and want to reach out to you. Where can they find you online? Yeah, I actually put my, I have my LinkedIn there as well as it is a professional email that I use that is not connected to my community. And I have that available as well. And that is where I have a lot of colleagues reach out just if they need advice or if they're stuck in a particular area. And I'm never too busy to stop and give somebody some bits of knowledge that are going to help another community be successful. That I'm very certain of, Erica. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your knowledge, your experience, the intangibles, tangibles, where you could grow, how to improve your communication, staff morale. Thank you so much for being on LTC Heroes. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Erica. Thank you for having me. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.